Welcome to the podcast of data and analytic in business. We will learn from the leading industry experts using data and analytics to solve the problems and create values in practice. We will also learn where the industry is heading to and how data and analytics will shape the industry in the future. Most importantly, how they are preparing their business for digital transformation and disruption in the future. I'm your host, Jason Tan, and thank you for listening. In this episode, we have Richard Hall, all the way from the United States. Rick is a technology veteran who has built multiple successful analytics and software companies. And this includes the G4 Analytics that was sold to Nielsen, a publicly listed company in New York Stock Exchange, back in 2013. Currently, Rick is the CEO of this analytic company called Agility. Agility is a software company that offers complete analytic management solution. It was named as the most trusted big data technology company by the CIO Techie magazine. One of the vision that Rick in building Agility is he want to bridge the last mile of the analytic. Now, very often you will hear the term of last mile being used in the shipping or the logistic industry. However, we make use of the case about you for the last mile of the analytic with a lot of great example and also the vision that he is looking to help the semi-professional analytic professional in better use of the technology and the analytic in solving their day-to-day problem. Apart from the discussion about what Agility software does, Rick also shared his experience about the BI adoption back in the 1980s versus the data science adoption that we are witnessing right now. He shared a very unique view about looking at these two and why the business leader in today's world should pay a lot of attention to the data science and how to use it in better advance their organization. Last but not least, we also go into his philosophy in building a successful software company and startup. There are many gold nuggets that you can take away from this episode. But if you are someone who works in the large corporate as a senior analytic manager, and especially if you are in the IT department or the analytic department, I think one of the really important takeaways that you want to have from this episode by Rick is how can you help and how can you make it easier for your non-tech, non-analytic workforce to better use the analytic in solving their problem? Because by nature of the skill set, they will not particularly train up in using all of these defensive tools or the advanced engineering software analytic tools where your data scientists are finding it comfortable in using. By closing this gap, you will help your organization to fully utilize the power of the data analytic. As usual, if you have any question for me and Rick, send us a voice message or an email and uh, we'll answer that to you. If you enjoyed this episode or any other upcoming episode in this sort of content, give us a subscribe on the Apple or Google podcast and we'll bring you more the analytic discussion that can be used to advance your organization. Thank you and enjoy the interview. Good evening. It's, I think, 5 o'clock in where you are, Rick. Welcome to the Analytics Show. I'm super excited to chat with you today about what you guys do at the Agility Corporation. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me on. You know, I'd love to chat about what we're doing, and it's always fun to talk to a new group. Well, I can assure you that the honor is mine. Now, let's start with a little bit about perhaps some advice and insight for the younger analytic professional in terms of their career growth that you can offer from you. Like, so in line with this, I want to ask you about your 
career trajectory. So you had an economic degree and you started your career in technology as a system admin. From then on, you never left the field of tech and move on to increasing challenging roles and also various works like the BI and the data science. So I suppose the question for you is, how was the learning curve for you at the beginning of your career? And how did you move from one role to another as the role are evolving and changing? Yeah, so I think for me, what served me really well is that I was always passionate and interested in business and how the decisions really get made, right? So I think sometimes people in technology careers make what I think is a mistake of just being interested in the technology. And they don't really necessarily show a great interest in the business problem and what they're really trying to solve. So what served me from the very beginning has been an interest in the business that whatever company I was at. And my career has, I think, been at this intersection of business and technology. And And I think that's where analytics lives, right? It lives at this intersection of decisions and data. And so I would advise anybody who's really interested in building a career in analytics is, yes, learn the technology, but the technology is going to change. Learn the business and what drives kind of profit or loss, or if you're a nonprofit, what drives success for your organization and marry that with the technology. And I think that will serve you well. That is a great advice. I have seen many of the young people or the, the tech people often uh, to focus in, in the business. So I think that will work well for them if they to really follow that. So you started your career running the business practice with Zynga Corporation. Let's go back a little bit of history in the 1985. So it was the time when business intelligence to started to gain momentum. Now, my question for you then is, if history is our teacher, what can we learn from comparing the BI adoption in that era and the data science adoption in the late 2000s? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. So I think that the first thing is there have been successes and failures in both periods of time, right? And I think in the earlier times, sometimes the failures were just technology related because sometimes the data was just too big to process or we couldn't move things fast enough. But I think more often than not, it's always been about, do we really deliver the right insights to the question, right? So so when I started, I didn't start out to be in analytics. I started out doing software kind of engineering really from a systems perspective. We were consulting with telecommunications companies And this is back in the U.S. when AT&T, which was our national monopoly, was broken up. And we were doing a lot of work for them. And there was a tremendous amount of analysis that they needed, particularly around this problem of churn, right? So somebody would sign up for a phone line, and then they would cancel it, right, at some point, right? So how do they keep customers became this problem. And so solving that problem turned into a data problem. And looking at that data got us introduced to the early days of data warehousing and the centralized analytic problems, right? So I would say that in the early days, we were applying centralized analytics that were highly structured to solve a particular problem. And I think today, we're trying to distribute analytics to the edge of a business, right? Into every business process, whether it's AI, or BI, it doesn't really matter. It's, you know, we're trying to drive drive analytics out to the edge. So I think that the difference is kind of centralization versus the edge, but it's been the ability to understand that you really have a clear problem you're trying to solve. You're not just processing data for its own sake. It was true then and is true now. I agree. And also with the advance of the technology, like you pointed out, that some of those problems are more of the technical problem where the computer processing power probably couldn't take on the amount of data that AD&T was trying to pump in as well. As we are moving to the cloud, a lot of the issues that you were facing, I suppose they are going away now. Um, do you think that would be 
I clearly lost my thought there. <laughs> yeah, well, so let me share an idea, which I think maybe kind of relates to your thoughts. So we've seen this big wave of new technology and analytics, right? So we had centralized data warehousing that kind of started in the 90s and really dominated up through kind of 2010, 2012, somewhere in there. And then we've had the kind of emergence of the cloud. And at first, I think people just saw the cloud as a faster way to do the same thing that we did before in these centralized analytic projects, right? But actually, with these new data platforms, so whether it's Snowflake or Redshift or Synapse or or just Hive raw on a, on a server, these engines are highly elastic and highly scalable. And that has actually allowed us to do business differently. So it's not just solving the same problems faster and at scale, but it's allowing us to be much more adaptive. So we used to process the data before we loaded it, right? And it was very structured to answer one question or maybe a set of questions, right? Now, we want to load the data in a reasonably raw form so that we can not only process the data to answer the questions that we know about, but that the data is going to be available to answer questions that we don't know about. And I think that the big power of the cloud is not just scale, but it's this versatility. It's the ability to answer more questions differently that we don't anticipate in advance. Thank you for helping me out with my where I lost my train of thought. I think that, that is a really good point. I think apart from that, the other question I have for you then is, what do you think is the unique characteristic of the data science that we are witnessing this time that is so different from the BI adoption and the development compared to the late 1980s? So I think that there's kind of at least two major sets of differences. I mean, the first is that what I kind of mentioned before, which is we're not trying to pre-process the data to answer just one question. We're trying to open it up to answer many questions. But the other is BI grew up in a world where we're trying to give humans the ability to sort through the data, right, and find insights. And with AI and machine learning, we're trying to use the machine to sort through the data and generate insights, and in some cases, recommendations or even actions, right? So in the BI world, we were trying to put the data together so that a human could sort through it and find insights. In kind of the AI world, we're trying to use AI and machine learning to serve up insights directly into the business and empower the business people to not just sit around and surf data, but to have recommendations that they can apply to their business directly. I love your take on that one. Now, for the business leader who have witnessed the both era, why do you think they should care and pay more attention this time around this technology and the impact on their businesses? I mean, I think that we're finding that analytics has the opportunity to improve just about everything, right? So if you think about innovation, we live in this year where we had this outbreak of COVID, and we had this vaccine that was produced in record time. And what we don't necessarily think about is there was some great pure science advancement, but there's a whole lot of data being processed in the act of innovation, right? So our ability to test and learn and iterate is all data-driven now. So that's one thing. And then I think just using resources more efficiently, right? So I think the early application of analytics, so supply chain optimization, or maybe customer analysis or finance, that proved how much analytics can improve a process. Now, I think leading organizations are trying to push that into every process. And I think sometimes it's BI, sometimes it's AI, it's a combination of the two. There's all this conversation about, are machines going to take over? And you know, I don't believe that. I think that what AI and analytics does is it actually can empower business people with recommendations and insights, but it's the combination of the human with the processing of the data that's going to create power. It's not that the machines are just going to make the decisions on their own. I think that there are some rare cases where pure machine decisions 
is more efficient. But most of the time, the real win is the combination of the machines serving up insights to a human who can then make a better decision and sometimes rethink what that data is telling them. I agree. Now, please share with us about your latest tech adventure. I believe it's called Kane Corporation. What made you decide to start this company and what are major services that you're providing? Yes. You mentioned Zyga. So I was at Zyga and then I left Zyga and formed a company called G4 Analytics, which we sold to Nielsen in 2012. And I went on to run the analytics for their whole sales business for about five years. I left there and became the CTO of a retail services company. And that was fun, but I realized I wanted to get back to pure innovation. So I formed Karen with kind of two things in mind, right? One is that I felt like people needed to have some insights in how to implement analytics, how to productize data. And we started doing that with Karen and we performed some services that were coaching and training. But we also were really interested in this problem of how do engineers and business people collaborate, right? So there's a lot of analytic tooling that's designed purely for the engineer. And there's some tooling that's purely for the business analyst. And some of the business tooling likes to pretend that everything can be done by the business person without the engineer, right? But I actually think it's this intersection of engineers and analysts working together that is really exciting. So we were interested in that kind of last mile of not just big centralized AI, but AI across the business. And we saw what Agenity was doing. We thought that was interesting. So we bought Agenity to go really, really hard at this problem of kind of, we call it collaborative analytics. So analytics for everybody whether it's the engineer and the analyst, all collaborating in this very organic way. And so it's kind of helping people in how to think about AI. That's where Karen started. We really got interested in the technology. That led to the acquisition of Agenity. And Agenity is focused on this collaborative capability for engineers and analysts to work together. I want to come back about the Agenity just in a second, as I have a question for you. But I want to develop a little bit of what you just mentioned in terms of the last mile. Now, last mile often is very is used a lot in the shipping industry or when people are making the purchase over the e-commerce and uh, how Amazon is getting the product from the warehouse to the one of the central point and then from there to do the last mile. I thought it was quite interesting when you mentioned about the last mile in this context, but I'm not too sure if I fully understood what you were explaining to me. Do you mind that a little bit? Because I thought it's really interesting that they use that terminology. Yeah. So it's something that we've kind of gotten really focused on. So I think that the past generation of analytics was largely applied to big centralized problems, right? So supply chain optimization, customer sales reporting, et cetera, right? But if you look at organizations today, that maybe covers 20, 30, 40% of your core decisions, but there are thousands of decisions that be made every day by people in the business, right? So we think of those people as business analysts. And a lot of times they have a business degree, they didn't have a technical degree, but they were good with Excel. So they got kind of became this assistant role for some decision maker, and they have to deal with all the problems that the big centralized processes can't handle, right? So when I think of the last mile, when I use that term in analytics, what I really mean is pushing analytics out into every corner of the business beyond just the big centralized processes. I think a lot of people in analytics don't like to think of Excel as an analytics tool, but it is the most successful analytics tool on the planet by far, right? And the reason is, is it's a tool that the average person can use in that last mile. But it has a lot of shortcomings in terms of its ability to work with the rest of the corporation, right? Because it's a personal productivity tool. You can't see the history. You don't know what somebody did with it. But they did something, right? They made a decision. But the next guy in the next room did something else. And they come up with a different answer, right? So 
it's like solving for that, right? The diversity of decisions across the business. That's what we think of as the last mile. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I think when you say it pushed to all the corner and also down to all the analyst level, I think it really started to make sense. It, it, it's got me thinking as well is that often the analysts at the far end of the use of those advanced data analytics is often the level and the complexity of the problem that they solve are equally high. But then in terms of the skills that they need to get the data and need to define the beauty analytic model is however somehow limited. So how to marry those two together perhaps is the biggest problem because they obviously cannot quite rely on the Excel but at the same time, they may not necessarily have the skills of the data scientists. So I think that is probably one of the big challenges that a lot of the organization are still facing. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I agree with that 100%. So I was reading this study that IBM did a few years ago, and they were saying that we need 2 million data scientists in the US, right? And we educate like 40,000 of them a year. And I think every country has this kind of problem, right? So IBM's answer was, we're going to train a lot more engineers. And like, but you're not going to go from 40,000 to 2 million. It's just not going to happen, right? So what we actually have to do is create tooling that empowers those semi-technical people to do some of this work, right? So for us, we think SQL is the data processing language under the hood to process data. Certainly, when you get into advanced math, you have Python and other things, TensorFlow, whatever. But the core of getting the data, getting basic analysis is a lot of it's SQL, right? So what we provide is an interface across this journey from acquire data, ingest data, cleanse data, integrate data, calculate data, and finally provision it. If that's the flow of every analytical problem, which I think it kind of is, what we're trying to do is create a combination of an engineer can always write the SQL to do that, right? A business user can maybe use some of that SQL with some parameters, et cetera, but we can provide wizards that do a lot of that work for them, right? So we can unify this semi-skilled, semi-technical person with the technical person, that's what we think of as this collaboration, right? Is that we don't have to write code for every problem. The engineers often will want to, right? Because they can optimize the code. The wizard is never going to produce the most optimal piece of code. But the wizards can produce something that an analyst or a semi-technical person can use. And if we can unite that, with what the engineer can do, we can kind of bridge this gap of skills from highly technical, of which we don't have enough of those people, to all these people in the business, which are kind of semi-technical, which you have maybe there's a hundred of them for every one engineer, right? So we need to create tooling that makes their path easier. That's what we're trying to do at Agenity. We think that's a critical problem because we just don't think there's ever going to be enough data scientists to address every corner of the business, right? We really truly believe that analytics everywhere is part of the future, then we have to enable that by recognizing that a lot of those people out in the business are not engineers and they are not data scientists. And uh, we need to kind of create tooling that lets them work with the engineers and leverage the work the engineers do. That reminded me in the old days when I was still in the corporate and also a lot of the books that we do these days is about building a lot of those tool sets for the analysts to be able to use that. That's music to my ear. Now tell us a little bit more how exactly these the software agility doing that to solve this problem, like in terms of the mechanical maybe a little bit of the nitty-gritty of that. Sure. So the first thing that we recognized, you know, you talked about the cloud, and I think it's super important, is these really powerful data platforms, right? So Snowflake, Redshift, Synapse, Hive, a bunch of them, right? We've recognized that they can process the data really elastically and at scale, right? So the first thing is that we're providing tooling 
that sits on top of these platforms. We are not providing the processing layer, right? So that allows us to leverage their power and leverage the data that's already in it, in those systems, rather than trying to take the data out and put it in some other system to use it. So that's the first thing is that we sit on top of the data platforms. The second thing is that those data platforms, they all talk SQL, right? So first thing, and one of the reasons why we bought Agenity is Agenity had a SQL tool that talked to all these data platforms, right? Which was a, took a lot of engineering to build a SQL interface that could talk to both Hive and Redshift and Snowflake and Greenplum and a bunch of them, right? So that technology was part of what Agenity had building SQL that sits across all these databases. Then on top of that, we looked at this journey to say, I need to ingest data. I need to cleanse data. I need to integrate data. I need to calculate it and analyze it, right? Maybe provision it into an AI tool. And we said, okay, there's a journey here that every analytic problem has. And what we're going to do is allow you to write SQL for any part of that, but we're also going to build wizards that make it so that a non-technical person can perform that function. And those wizards, what do they do? They generate the SQL that talks to these data platforms, right? So the first set of wizards we built were data ingestion wizards. And just to give you an example of how I think things have changed, we have customers that have 3,000 users 60% of those users are non-engineers, and they are using these ingestion wizards to ingest data into the central data platforms, right? And if you think back 15 years ago, when I was running these big data platforms, we wouldn't let a user load data into our data warehouse under, under any circumstance, right? There's no way we would let the users load their own data. Forget that, right? But now we can right? And we can create tooling that lets them do that. So it's a SQL layer that talks to your data platforms. So we support 10 today. We're going to support some more. If you have one of these data platforms or even several of them, we have many customers who have two or three of them, then we can provide an interface that sits on top that an engineer can write SQL against directly in an optimized way. And a business user can use a wizard that will perform these steps, ingest data, cleanse data, integrate data, et cetera. And that's going to generate SQL that's going to then feed down into the data platform, right? So everything under the hood is SQL for us. Or as these data platforms evolve, and what's interesting is they're starting to provide more and more data science capabilities directly in the platform we'll add those to our interface, right? So Redshift just released a whole bunch of data science functions that you would have had to take the data out of the data platform, put it in separate data science platform. Now you don't necessarily have to do that. Then we can provide a wizard that lets a user use that function. So when I was doing the research, I think looking at the website of the Agility, use a term called analytic catalog. And my impression of using that word seems to be quite different to the problem that you guys are solving that you just explained to me. So the question I had prepared for you then is, would you say is completely different to, in terms of the, the data governance tools like the Calibra? I mean, in case someone who is looking at the Agility website as they are listening to this. Yeah, so that's a good question, right? So we think that the problem with tools like Calibra, they might be a great catalog capability, but they're standalone from something that you can activate, right? So what we do is we take everything that you create, that you write or SQL is generated, and we let you store it in the catalog, right? So the catalog evolves through the usage and through the building of analysis, right? And as new analytics are built, you can share them, right? So Agenity Pro is a personal tool, so you can create your own catalog and share your stuff. Agenity Premium makes the catalog an enterprise asset. So 
if you're an engineer, you create something, you can share it in the catalog, you can organize it so that certain people can use it. It can become parameterized so it's reusable. So the catalog evolves through the building of analysis. So everything can be shared in the catalog and reused by yourself or by others. Would you say is very similar to what they call data fabric? Yeah, so no, but that's a good question. The thing about data fabrics is they have their own processing layer, right? So ultimately, in order to perform a join across multiple databases, you have to put the data in memory. You need your own processing layer to do that, right? So we've made the choice to say we are not going to have a processing layer. We're going to rely on the, the data platform's processing layer. And what you see is increasingly the data platforms have these external join capabilities directly in the data platform, right? So Redshift is a good example. They announced at uh, reInvent just like a few weeks ago, a new ability to access data that was outside of their database. And we had been collaborating with their engineers. So we were actually the first platform to support this data federation capability. So they actually used our tool to demonstrate it at reInvent, which was great for us. But the point was they provided that connectivity. They had the memory management. The data fabrics were a layer that sat on top of the databases. And we're very much choosing to let the data platforms create the fabrics, and we will provide the tooling to use them. Does that make sense? It does. And I was going to say, it sounds like you guys have started something completely unique and uh, very niche. Is there anyone else doing this type of thing? So our vision, right, this collaboration vision and the whole life cycle from ingesting data through to the end is unique, right? It's more comprehensive. And there are great vendors in kind of each area, right? So if you're just an engineer and you want to write great logic, right? Maybe you're going to use DBT, right, as a processing engine. But an analyst could never use that. And whatever is produced by that engineer is never going to be shared with the analysts, right? They share things through GitHub, right, which is great for engineers, but a business user is just not going to work with Git, right? So the comprehensiveness of trying to do the entire value chain and collaboration And then this decision to not build our own processing layer is a bit unique, right? And we think that it's the right time because we think that empowering the business users is key. We think that they're more powerful when they can collaborate with engineers. We don't think the business person can learn five different tools, right? I'm going to use this for ingestion of data and something else for data quality and something else for a catalog. And kind of for these big industrial pipelines that were centralized, we could do that as engineers, right? But for this organic collaborative process, that's just not going to happen. So that is a unique vision to say, we're going to make the complete value chain available and we're going to allow engineers and analysts to work together. It's, it's different than what other people are doing. But we think it's ultimately powerful and the feedback from our customers has been great. We're still pretty early. So I have to be clear that we don't have every one of those processes wizardized yet, right? But we're getting there pretty quickly. Without revealing their trade secret, share with us a real case study by one of the customer. Yeah, sure. So when I had G4 and I sold G4 to Nielsen, We were very focused on the consumer goods sector. So one of the sets of customers that came with us when we formed Agenny were some very large consumer goods manufacturers, big global brands, right? Now, if you're in the consumer goods space, you work with lots of retailers, and every retailer has their own data, right? And one of the problems that you have is you need to take your data your shipments and sales, and the retailer's data, their sales to consumers, and you need to marry the two together, right? And that's a messy problem because the way you identify it is different and everybody's got a different description, et cetera, right? So 
a lot of that has been handled with very complicated logic written by engineers and external tables to solve this problem of marrying this data together. It's a messy problem. So we have a customer that's built a solution on our platform that allows them to make this really dead easy for their manufacturer customers. Say, look, if you've got lots of retailers, you've got lots of data sources, you need to tie that together really quickly to perform analysis, then not only are we going to provide you the standard analysis, we're going to let you bring in those new data sources quickly. And if you think back to the last year, right, a year and a half ago, if you were the head of sales for a consumer goods company, you probably had a model that told you what price is the optimal price. Well, suddenly COVID came along and all your models go out the window and all this new data comes along about testing, et cetera. Well, you need to bring that data into your world. And our job is to create tools that make it easy to bring the data that you didn't know about together with the data that you already had to make rapid, fast decisions, right? So that's what we're seeing happen in consumer goods. We have lots of insurance customers there. They're bringing in every one of their individual customers' data to fashion claims and other analysis. And there's examples across many, many industries where we are participating. That is fascinating. Now, as a software entrepreneur, what is the philosophy that you are infusing into agility after the acquisition that you believe is important to make this the next software powerhouse? We think of ourselves as product-led and vision-directed, right? So I think every company, particularly an early-stage company, you have to have a North Star vision. Where are you trying to get to that's big and bold and ambitious, right? Because let's face it, nobody ever got up in the morning and said, Today, I want to do something mediocre, right? People want to do big things. And so I think a big vision helps, right? So our big vision, this collaborative vision between engineers and analysts and the last mile, that's a pretty big vision. And it's inspired us to do our work. So you need an inspirational vision. That's one thing. And then you have to build a team that is powered by collaboration. So people are critical, right? You have to treat them with respect. You have to empower them to do their work. That's really important. And then the other thing, which is really key to product, is you have to look at what your customers are doing and analyze it and test and learn and iterate, right? So you might have an idea about how you're going to solve a problem and you go out and program that idea. Well, you introduce it to customers and they come back and tell you, that, well, it doesn't work exactly the way you intended. So you have to iterate, right? Or maybe they don't tell you anything, but if you observe the data of their usage, you can see that many of your customers are getting stuck at the same point, right? So you use data. We're a very data-driven culture. So we analyze what our customers are doing all the time, and we try to use that data to help us understand how to improve the technology, right? So where are users getting stuck? Which capabilities are they really using? And we iterate on that. And then we run a lot of customer sessions, interviews, and focus groups to understand what problems they're trying to solve. And we take that back into our process. So we create a new release of our product every month. So we're constantly iterating on what we're doing. And I would say, you know, it's kind of that vision, people, and iteration product. That's key to making a software company operate. Is that similar to the concept that you define and is called pathway to intelligent system in terms of like how the business to use the utilize to build the intelligent product design and development? Yeah, it is. Yeah. So we took that, that was the, the approach that we kind of had put together at Karen, and we've applied that to Agenity. And it's a very product-led approach. And I think that we've seen product innovation really be revolutionized over the past 10 years, right? We tend to think of the entrepreneur has the great idea. So you think of like Steve Jobs, or it's all about his great mind. But actually, what's increasingly happened with product development 
is we've started to think about how do we iterate, right? And how do we test and learn and use data and use customer insights about their problem to drive our product, right? And those practices, when you have kind of authors, you have books like The Lean Startup or Inspired and the Silicon Valley Product Group and a bunch of others who kind of started to institutionalize this very iterative approach. So we took that approach and applied it to data and analytics. And that's what we defined this pathway to intelligent systems at Karen around. We've taken that approach and we've applied it to Agenity. So speaking of the Karen and the Agenity, how did you decide Agenity was your first acquisition? How did you come to that point of deciding what that makes Agenity and attractive and the right acquisition? It really came down to this issue of that this last mile problem we're trying to solve. So we knew we wanted to solve that problem. And we originally, at Karen, we're going to start from scratch and go build the whole thing ourselves. But I had been introduced by the former president of Nielsen, who I'd worked for when I sold G4 there, to the CEO of Agenity. And when I looked at what they were doing, I realized that what they had would give us like a two-year head start on what we were doing. And so because they had this SQL engine under the hood, they already had the engine, right? We knew we loved the engine. We loved their ideas of talking to these data platforms. And what we would need to do is build the interface on top of that, that that would save us a tremendous amount of time and get us to our ultimate goal faster, right? So we had the vision and their vision and our vision were very closely aligned. And their technology gave us a huge head start, right? So we made the decision to make a purchase. We didn't originally intend Karen to buy companies, right? But that just became the obvious way to get where we were going faster. And it's interesting because you talk to engineers all the time and engineers, and I love engineering, but you always want to write it yourself, right? If you're an engineer, you don't want to use somebody else's stuff. So it's not an easy decision to start with somebody else's work. But we kept the engineering team. The Agenity engineering team, are, it was a great group. Many of them have been together for as much as eight, 10 years and built this SQL technology. And so we've married our product-led approach. We've built a whole product team. The product and engineering teams are collaborating great. But it's because we have the same vision, right, that we made that acquisition. Looking back, do you remember vividly someone was very supportive of this decision to acquire Agility instead of starting from scratch? Yeah, I would say most of us at Karen were supportive of it. And I've been lucky because I've had a couple other companies before and had some success that I have some board advisors who've been very supportive of the things that I've done. And I brought this idea to them. And, and to be honest with you, when I brought the idea to my team, I wasn't really certain. I thought, you know, maybe this will work, but I'm not sure we want to make an acquisition, right? So the team as a whole went and looked at it and decided, yeah, this is the right thing to do. Now, to be honest with you, we had some engineering work that had already started at Karen. And we had to put that aside in favor of using the work that Agenity had already done. And I got to give my product and technical team credit because that took setting aside a lot of ego, right? To adopt to somebody else's stuff. And I think because we had this North Star vision that we were all aligned to, they were able to make that change. And there's no difference in the teams at this point. Like nobody ever says, well, I came from the Agenity side or I came from the Karen side. It's just one team. They're united to this vision. We've been pretty lucky in that respect. But yeah, that's never an easy process. And I would say I've seen a lot of acquisitions, right? I had a company that was acquired by Nielsen. I've been through that acquisition process twice now. And I guess having been on the other side of it, and seeing how it can go wrong, we had a very strong sense of what we needed to do to make it go right. And one of the things I think we're 
I don't know if we were smart about, but maybe lucky about is this decision to say, no, we're going to use the engineering stack and the code of agility instead of this new stuff. We made that decision. And, and one is that empowered the entire agility team, right? It's like, okay, they're not going to just take our customers and throw away our ideas. They're going to build on our ideas. And that's been great. And our team has doubled in size since we did that acquisition. That was only in March, right? So, and we're going to double again this year. So we're off to a good start. Great sound. And what would you say that is few of the things that you do to make sure that when two teams came together, they would still share and invest in the culture that you build? I think you have to lead by example. I think you have to empower people. I put together this list of kind of principles that we guide ourselves on. And the customer is at the front of that. But one of them is that constructive conflict is at the heart of innovation, right? So what we try to say is, it's not about me or you, it's about the idea. And we want a certain constructive conflict to be part of our culture. And we're going to have conflict in a constructive way, not in a destabilizing way, right? So I think that's really critical. Whether you're acquiring a company or just building a team, I say that innovation is conflict, period, right? So because you always have conflict between the old idea and the new idea, that's what innovation is, right? And even when you're invading a new idea, there's different alternatives and you have conflict between those ideas. So we try to boil that into a process. We try to use data and our customers to help make those decisions. And that's key. And the other big part of it is just trust, right? You have to build trust. The only way you build trust is by example, right? So if you don't trust people and empower them, then they see that. And that, I think, is just really kind of critical. So we've been lucky that way. And you know, I think the cultures of the two companies were aligned anyways. But I would say that constructive conflict, trust and empowerment, and iteration, those are key to making that work. I love your focus on the trust. I think that is probably the most important thing for me as well, how to make the people have that safety net in terms of the trust. So really like it. And my question for you, the last question is that having worked at the multinational company and your own company that buy and sell software, right? What would be your advice for the enterprise buyers in making their purchasing decision, whether to invest in a known brand name or a relatively startup, which is like the both side of the world that you have been in as well? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that, first of all, we we're one of the great things about Genie is there were 30,000 users of their free product, right? So there was already people in the organization that knew our stuff and we started with them, right? So we are now finding we're sometimes talking to the chief data officer, chief analytics officer, but our business model is a freemium model, right? So there's a free version of uh, Genity Pro. You can download it and start using it. You don't have to pay us a dime, right? And if you use it and you like it, you can pay for it. And if you really like it, you want to do more, there's the premium version of it, right? And additional features, right? So one of the things that we recognize, and I think this is really true of a small software company, is that it's hard to go sell to the C-level, the chief data officer, something that's unproven, right? So our focus is to prove it, right? And we're going to prove it at the front line. So by the time we're talking to the chief data officer, chief analytics officer, there are already people who've used our stuff. They know that it works and they can take it on and expand it from there. When we do have a conversation with somebody who's an executive and, and we're suggesting this big vision to them, we even say the same thing to them, right? Say, look, you don't have to sign up for an enterprise license with 5,000 seats tomorrow. Start out with, I mean, if you want to, great, we'll, we'd love that, right? But we're not trying to make the big pressure hard sell. We have a, a trial adopt and expand kind of model. And I think that's really important for a small software company is that you've got to prove it. Let's be honest, a lot of technology 
that's been sold over the years doesn't do what is advertised, right? So big decision makers are skeptical and they like to buy from people that they know and trust. And so if you want to penetrate into that world, you've got to build your own trust. And the way I think that we've chosen to do that is by this kind of freemium land and expand model, which makes it really easy to try our stuff. And if you like it, and if it works for you, then we expand. And by the way, we always tell people, look, if you don't like it, if you find something that's a problem, tell us, because we're making new versions all the time. And we're always trying to learn what we've done. We've been fortunate that most of our customers do like our stuff, right? So we're just coming into our first year of renewals and everybody's renewing and many of them are adding more users, right? So, but the only way you get there is if you have a passion for the problem, a passion for your customers and you listen and you learn and you observe what they're doing and you do the hard work of iterating, right? Because iteration, it's hard, right? It's not like we just write something once. You're going to write the same thing over and over and over again and keep improving and improving it. That takes real work. So, but that's what we're doing. And it's been so far so good. Good stuff. Now, if some of the listeners want to download the premium version of the software, I presume they will be able to download from the Agility website? Yeah. So right now we have a pre-release version of it. So we ask customers that they have to be kind of nominated to join the pre-release version. We have about a dozen customers using premium today. And it will be generally released by the end of the first quarter. So kind of March timeframe. And then it will be downloadable same way as Pro is, right? We're going to make it as easy as we possibly can to implement everything that we do, right? That's key to the success. Easy, value quickly, uh, proven use cases. That's how we expand and how we get the big companies to take on our stuff. Good stuff. I'll list the website on the post as well when this is released. Now that brings us almost to the end of this interview. What is your most important first principle? It's about the customer. It's not about you. If you're in business to make money, I guess there are lots of people who, who are specifically in, but I think you have to be passionate about the problem and the customers. And I think that's the first principle is be passionate about the problem and the customer. If you are, they know it, they can tell, and they will stick with you even when you make mistakes. I don't think you can ever get beyond those people and those relationships. Love it. So I agree with that. What is one book that you have read and thought it would have been better for your younger self to have? I think inspired how to make products that customers love written by Marty Kagan of the Silicon Valley Product Group. That's a great book that kind of talks about this kind of iterative learning product-oriented approach. So if I was going to recommend one book, that would be a great one to read. I think on my LinkedIn feed, I have a list of my 10 favorite books. So I would tell people, go check that out. Wonderful. I will surely check that out. I actually haven't come across that one before, but I love the sound of it. Thank you so much, Rick, for this interview and also sharing with us what you guys do at the Agility. That was really great. I'm sure that the listener will enjoy it as well. Yeah. And Jason, thank you. I really appreciate you talking to me and, and sharing our stuff with your listeners. It's great to talk across the world in this way. And I hope you have a great day and a great year ahead. Indeed. Thank you so much. 